So we're starting um, chapter 46, verse 1. So Israel set out with all that was his. And when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. The reading continues from verse 26. All those who went to Egypt with Jacob, those who were his direct descendants, not counting his son's wives, numbered 66 persons. With the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, the members of Jacob's family which went to Egypt were 70 in all. Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, Now I am ready to die, since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh, and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were living in the land of Canaan, have come to me. The men are shepherds, they tend livestock, and they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, What is your occupation? You should answer, Your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. The reading continues from chapter 47, verse 27. Now, the Israelites settled in Egypt, in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there, and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favour in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and will increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. The reading continues from verse 17. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, No, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people and he too will become great. 
Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and said, In your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, I am about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. The reading continues from chapter 50, verse 12. So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre, which Abraham had bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite, along with the field. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are saying to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt, along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also, the children of Machir says, I were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. This is God's word. Let's pray as we look at this final section in the story. Our Father God, we we pray that you would help us to understand as we uh, read this ancient story about the God of today, the God in whose hands we live, the God to whom we can entrust our lives. And we ask this for your glory. Amen. It is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but it is the end of the beginning, said Winston Churchill. (laughs) Don't laugh, it was a particularly good impression. I've been practicing it in the mirror all afternoon. Uh, He said that in 1942, and the same is true of chapters 46 to 50. There were still three years of war left when he said that. Chapters 46 to 50 is not just the end of the story of Jacob and his sons. It is also the the end of the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. But it is just the start of the great story of salvation that God launched in Genesis 3 
and that will unfold slowly but surely through thousands of years of history until it reaches its climax with the life, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ almost 2,000 years later. This is the end of the book of beginnings. And throughout this story, we've been learning about God's providence, which is how God works through the circumstances of daily life, often when it just looks like mess and chaos to us. But God is providentially at work in all the circumstances, bringing about his good purposes. And we need to know this. We need to get this this lesson, this truth that God is in control buried deep in our hearts if we are to trust this God. Because for all of us at some point, if it hasn't happened already, it will do. Life will get confusing and painful. And unless we understand that God is in control, when life gets painful, we will run from him rather than running to him. And chapters 46 uh, to 50 prove to us that God was always in control of this chaotic story. That he was always working out his plan set out in Genesis 3.15 to raise up a serpent crusher from the offspring of Eve. One who would finally triumph over sin and death and bring an end to the pain and suffering of our world. This same God, this same God is the one who is at work in your life today. This same God is the one who holds you in his hands. And so it is very important that we learn about him together. Uh, We're going to whiz through uh, chapters 46 to 49 before slowing right down as we build towards that uh, verse that's on our service sheets. the, The key verse that unlocks the whole of this story, chapter 50 and verse 20. And as we get to these final chapters, we'll see that God starts to tie up some loose ends. And there is a symmetry in these last chapters that shows that God has been at work throughout. That these aren't random events. That God isn't somehow rescuing the day at the end like a, like a, a movie hero where everything's gone wrong but somehow he makes it right. Instead, we see hint after hint that God has been at work throughout and that all has gone according to plan. So the story started in chapter 37, and you'll see a number of deliberate contrasts if you flick through. So 37 verse 2, Joseph lives 17 years with his father Jacob in Canaan. 47 verse 28, Jacob lives 17 years with Joseph in Egypt. Chapter 37 verses 5 to 9, Joseph dreams his brothers will bow down before him. Chapter 50, 18, his brothers bow down before him. Chapter 37, verses 4 to 8, the brothers hated Joseph. Chapter 50, verse 15, the brothers fear that Joseph will hate them. Chapter 37, verse 4, the brothers can't speak a kind word to Joseph. Chapter 50, verse 21, we're told Joseph speaks the same word kindly to them. Chapter 37, verse 28, the brothers sell Joseph as a slave. Chapter 50, verse 18, the brothers do what? They throw themselves before him as Joseph's slaves. In other words, the story's been like a tapestry, at which point I'm stepping slightly outside my areas of expertise. What I do know about tapestries is that if you look on the back side of a tapestry, it is a mess. Just a total mess of, of loose thread and, and just random bits of fabric. It's only when you turn it over and look on the other side that you see the, 
Norman conquest of Britain or whatever it is that your particular tapestry happens to depict. And from a human perspective, the story of Joseph has been like that. And from a human perspective, our lives are often like that too. Just a confusing mess of seemingly random events and and pointless suffering that cannot possibly serve any good purpose. But as we stand back and as we turn over the tapestry, if you like, for the story of Joseph, we see that the random actions of this ragtag group of people, some of who have been trying to obey God, some of them have been trying to disobey God, and others of them are just completely ignorant even of the existence of the one true God. And yet somehow, through it all, through them all, God has been at work weaving subtly, gently his beautiful purposes in ways which were they were completely unaware of at the time. And it's only as we stand back at the end that we can see the wonderful pattern that God has been weaving. He didn't just roll the dice in chapter 37 and see what would happen. God was at work planning, purposing, controlling, ensuring that his will was done. The other thing we see throughout this story, and uh, I think especially last week we saw, is that it's full of hints and shadows that point to the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, when this, this seemingly random series of events, when you stand back and look not just at the story of Joseph, but at the, the whole Bible, you realize that God has been at work not just resolving this family, but working out his perfect plan of salvation for all people who would trust in him. And details in this story don't just tie up with this story. They tie up with the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's pattern is more beautiful than any of us could have imagined. Well, let's look at it in a bit more detail. So Jacob takes the family to Egypt, verses uh, 1 to 4 of chapter 46. Now, the focus of God's promise to Abraham and his family in Genesis uh, chapter 12 and verses 1 to 3 is a chosen nation, a people, enjoying God's blessing in a promised land. And at this point, Jacob and the rest of the family, other than Joseph, already live in that promised land. So it seems just absolutely nuts for them to up sticks and go to Egypt and leave the promised land. But God appears at Beersheba. He always appears at the beginning of journeys of obedience in the Old Testament. And he appears at the beginning of this journey at Beersheba, right on the border of the promised land, to tell Jacob this is the right thing to do. Uh, Look at verses 3 to 4. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. And after the list of the members of migrating families in, uh, in the rest of the chapter, in 46.27, if you look down, we're told that there were 70 of them. In other indications, there may have been 75, but uh, the author here restricts the count to, to 70 particular members of the family. Numbers are incredibly important in Genesis. Seven is the number of completion. It relates back to the story of creation and the seven days of the week. Ten is another number of completion and plenty. Seven times ten, seventy, is saying the right number and a big number. That's what it means. 
In other words, they may not yet be the vast nation that God has promised he will make them into, but already God is fulfilling his promise that Abraham's seed will become a great people to bless the world. The next time we meet them in the book of Exodus, they will be a teeming nation. Okay, secondly, Joseph preserves the family in Egypt. Um, So the end of 46 and then uh, the end of 47. Now, Jesus Christ will be born of the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Joseph. But throughout these chapters, we've seen that Joseph is significant because he is the one that God will use to preserve the promise that one will be born of the line of Judah who will forgive us our sins. So he is the one who provides food so that the family won't just die in the dust of Canaan during the seven years of famine. He is the one who shows grace and forgiveness so that this family of bitter feuding and jealousy won't just be torn apart by vengeance and blood feud. And this is the reason that so many chapters of Genesis are devoted to to somebody who is not part of the line of promise. He is the preserver of the line of the serpent crusher. And now as we come to um, Egypt, he preserves the family from yet another threat. He prevents the Israelites from being spread out and absorbed and assimilated in Egypt. And you see in 47, he says to the brothers, when you go and see Pharaoh, tell him we are shepherds. Or, in other words, tell him we don't believe in personal hygiene. None of us ever use deodorant or brush our teeth. Where would you like us to live? Amongst you or perhaps over here away from everybody else? Wonderful. In other words, he says, it would be better for you to be looked down on by the Egyptians, but left on your own. So that you don't just join Egyptian society and become like the Egyptians, worshipping their gods, taking on their culture. You need to remain distinct so that You remain the family of God's promise, able to show something different to the world, the ways of God, able to draw the world to the one true God rather than just being drawn into the worship of the false gods of the world. That's why he says, make clear to Pharaoh that you're shepherds. He is the preserver of God's promises. Well, thirdly, the pattern of older and younger continues. Don't you wish all sermons could get through chapters this quickly? Uh, chapter 48, verses 1 to... Don't answer that question. Verses 1 to 9. Now, throughout this story and throughout the whole of Genesis, human plans, human priorities, human desires have been overturned by God. Again and again, he chooses people. And you think, what are you doing? Seriously, if you put me in charge, God, I'm not using that wicked fool. I mean, seriously, not her. She's absolutely useless. She has no faith whatsoever. Why would you do that? That's that's just stupid, God. That makes everything harder. And that's not neat or sensible. Why are you doing something so obviously wrong, God? You really think, it's as if you're trying to make life difficult for yourself. But it's not just this story. Actually, when you read the whole of the Bible, you realize this is the pattern throughout Scripture of what God seems to do. God is always using weak and despised people. He's always choosing uh, people that the world laughs at or ignores. He's always using, have you noticed, in every one of his stories, it's childless women, lesser sons, despised people, lowly rejected brothers. God is always doing things that make it clear that there is no human explanation 
for what God is achieving. Eventually, the serpent crusher, the son of God himself, will come to earth and he will not be born in a palace to a royal family. He'll be born in an obscure village in the armpit of Israel to a young girl from a nothing family who is engaged to be married. He'll be another statistic of teenage pregnancy. And eventually, God will smash the power of sin and death and overcome the forces of evil that will drag us all to eternal death. How? Through the shameful, humiliating, naked death of a man who's been rejected by everyone. That's the way it is with God. Eternal life comes from the grave. And the Jesus who died and rose again taught us that in his kingdom, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. All of this is to show it is God alone who deserves glory and praise for our salvation. But it should also encourage us. There's a danger that we... We never really go for it in our Christian lives. We never really take it seriously because, well, look at me. I've, I've got such a compromised past. I've got no great gifts. I could never stand up and speak. I could never, you know, go and be a missionary in a foreign country. I'm, I'm just inadequate and useless and we mope around. We forget that God has said his treasure is in jars of clay like us so that the all-surpassing power will be seen to be his, not ours. Stop wallowing in self-pity. Get on with serving. God shows his strength by using weak people. God shows his wisdom by using those of us who are not very clever. God shows his mercy by using those of us who think our sinful past disqualifies us from ever serving him. Turn back to Jesus. Trust in the power of his spirit and get on with serving your father. Okay, chapter 50. God does what God says and nothing can stop him. This is the heart of the section, the key of the story. Uh, we'll work our way up to, um, to verse 20 from verse 12. So Jacob has died and he's been buried back in the promised land. But sadly, the spirit of Jacob, the deceiver, the twister, still lives on in his sons. And they fear that Joseph has only been kind and forgiving to them out of respect for his father. And once the old man's out of the way... Well, then they will reap the terrible vengeance that the almighty prime minister of Egypt can so easily bring about. And so they do what, well, what Jacob would have done as a younger man, and they lie. Verse 16. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs, the evil they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When the message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. Now, I can't think of many heroes who blub as much as Joseph does. He spends the second half of this story basically blubbing. So what is he blubbing about here? I think there are two reasons. Uh, It's probably a mix of both, actually. I wonder whether partly he knows the truth. He knows his father never said any such thing. And after all the grace he's shown them, they still don't trust him. How sad. You can understand him weeping at that. But secondly, I do wonder whether he's also weeping 
because they're finally admitting their wrongs. They're not young men anymore. They're in their 50s and 60s probably. And yet this is the first time that publicly they've confessed it was evil and wicked for us to sell you into slavery. Finally, there is confession. Finally, there is repentance in this family that's been torn apart by jealousy. And so Joseph weeps. We said before, I think especially last week, that Joseph is a type of Jesus, a sort of shadow. He's like Jesus in some ways, and he's never more like Jesus than here in the way that he responds to his brothers as he shows them grace and refuses to hold their sins over them and instead takes them. Well, now we come to verse 20, and as I said, the key to the whole story. This is the story of all Jacob's sons, but Joseph is the central human character. But you'll notice that when the central human character of this story speaks, almost every time he speaks... He talks about God, and in particular, he talks about God's sovereign control of all that has happened in his life. And here, he draws it together into one key lesson, verses 19 to 21. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Question for you. Who is responsible for selling Joseph into slavery in Egypt? Joseph's brothers or God? Both. Both. The difference, verse 20, is their intention. The brothers intended harm to Joseph. They wanted him gone. But God intended blessing. And look how much broader God's blessing is than the harm. The the blessing that involves the saving of many lives and the accomplishing of all the great things now being fulfilled. See, it's not just that God has a plan. And because God is very clever and very powerful, like a chess grandmaster, he's able to to somehow counter the moves of his enemies and bring about what he'd said he wanted to do. It's much, much more extreme and uncomfortable than that. God achieves his good purposes through the wicked acts of sinful people who are genuinely responsible for what they do. The wicked plans of Joseph's brothers to harm him can also be said to be God's plan to bless. Can we comprehend that fully? No. But it is too prevalent. It appears too often in scripture for us just to ignore that verse as a weird phrase or or an odd idea. It's repeated again and again and again until finally, climactically, a greedy man called Judas betrays his friend Jesus for 30 silver pieces. And jealous, hate-filled religious leaders beg a cowardly, weak Roman governor to nail the man to a cross. But all the while, all the while, the Old Testament said God's plan was that his son would die to save us from our sins. Can you hear the echoes of Genesis 50 verse 20 and what Peter says about Jesus Christ in Acts 2.23? This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men 
put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Which means that right at the start, before there was a world, when there was just Father, Son and Holy Spirit in perfect, joy-filled, delighted union, as they planned not just the creation of the world, but the redemption of the world, God planned that Judas would betray Jesus. That the, the religious leaders would hate Jesus and beg for his death and that Pilate would be so weak, glory, sign the death sentence. God planned it all to bring about the glorious horrific death of his own son that we might be saved. It seems to me that God reveals three key truths in Genesis 50, 20, which are very, very important truths for us. These are truths to drill down into our hearts, truths to stand on and cling to when life gets difficult, confusing, and dark. One, God is absolutely, unqualifiedly sovereign. To put it another way, God does whatever he pleases. Two, God is absolutely, unqualifiedly good. What pleases him is to bless us. And three, we are absolutely, unqualifiedly responsible for what we do. I cannot explain how those strands fit together any more than I can explain how Jesus is fully God and fully man. Or how this Bible can be both the infallible word of God and yet written by humans at the same time. You see, the problem is, at this point, usually, the preacher says, it's a bit like this. And you get some strange story about his dog or a holiday he was on. An illustration, the point of which is you you explain something that people don't know in terms of something they do. You know, what's it going to taste like? A bit like chicken, really. You know, whatever it is you're going to be eating, it seems. Uh, so, you know, something that you know the taste of to get your head around something you don't know. But there is no illustration. Because this is not like anything else. Uh, the way a, a completely sovereign, uncreated creator who made everything relates to the responsible, rational creatures that he's made. It's not like a parent who knows exactly what their child will do. It's not like an author writing the characters in their story. It's not like a programmer writing a computer code. It is not like anything in the world. And perhaps that is why we don't get a philosophical description of it in the Bible, really. Some long treaties explaining how our finite, tiny human minds can comprehend the vastness of God and put him into the box of, I've got that sorted. We don't get the, the broken down explanation we want. Instead, we just get chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter of practically how it works out. Showing God as absolutely sovereign and yet showing us as responsible for what we do. Why do you get all those chapters? Now this bit I can illustrate. It's so that we'll learn to trust God. It's a bit like uh, getting on an aeroplane. My father's an aeronautical engineer. He has explained to me using pieces of paper and pens and equations that I couldn't understand how it is that an aeroplane gets into the sky. I've nodded to make him think I was cleverer than I am. But like most of us here who are not Imperial College students, uh, I have no idea how 400 tons of metal gets off the ground and goes from A to B. But... I've seen it happen an awful lot. In fact, I've seen it happen so often that I have no problems getting on a plane and trusting that if I sit in this seat and the pilot looks over the age of 25, we'll be all right. (laughs) 
And so I'm happy to get onto an aeroplane. God is a whole lot more reliable than aeroplanes, but the principle is the same. Story after story, so that even if I don't understand how these things can can work out, I've seen the principle so often that I know I can trust this God. I know that he's in control. I know that he's working for good. I'm so sure of that that I can trust him even when I can't understand it in my life. Now, why is it so important that we accept and believe that God is absolutely sovereign over every atom of this world, over every human decision, and that he is at work for our good? Why is that such an important thing for us to grasp? Well, firstly, because the Bible teaches it clearly, and really that ought to be enough. (laughs) If the Bible says it, I don't get to decide what God is like. He's not a, a focus group God, he's God. And the real God of the Bible says this about himself. And you see, related to that, actually God is perfect. God is perfect. And so when I change him, I'm not improving him. When I don't understand something and I struggle to get my head around it and I prefer it if it was different, I'm not improving God. He's perfect. When I add stuff to him, I'm making him worse. When I take stuff away from what he says about himself, I'm making him worse, not better. And let me show you why that is the case. What is it we lose if we don't have a confidence that God is absolutely sovereign over everything and absolutely devoted to doing what is good? Two things. Firstly, the essence of the Christian life is faith. We sang about that in that second song, a wonderful second song that we sang. We trust in a God we cannot see with our eyes and we're heading towards a world that has not even been made yet. And we will only be able to live a life of faith, trusting the promises that this God is able to bring me safely through everything that's going to happen in this life, through death and through eternal judgment. I'll only believe that God can get me through those things if I'm absolutely certain that this God keeps his promises and nothing can stop him. Nothing, but nothing can stop him. And at the very sharpest end, If this God can even be sovereignly at work through the wicked actions of wicked people who hate him, well then, surely nothing can stop him working to save us and bring us safely home. Nothing but nothing can frustrate his desire to do the good he has planned for you. Nothing but nothing can get in the way. Now, one day, you and I will see that everything has been part of his plan to bless his people and even us. None of the things you suffer are pointless. All are part of his purpose. Depression, bankruptcy, divorce, car crashes that were your fault, cancer that just hit, Disappointing lives that just never quite worked out the way we'd hoped or expected. One day we will see that through it all, it wasn't that God let stuff happen and said, don't worry, oh gosh, what a mess, I'll make up for it afterwards. It's much more radical than that. God is at work in and through everything. Using it to make us more like the Lord Jesus. Using it to bless us and others using it to bring us safely home. 
The story of Jacob and his sons teaches that again and again. We see things that make no sense in chapter 37 and seem to take God's purposes backwards. Things that are just profoundly evil and disgusting in chapter 38. Things that are totally unfair in chapter 39. We see things that don't get resolved for year after year after year in the following chapters. We see people at the hands of the greatest power in the world at the time and yet still nothing can stop God. And God is at work through it all, doing good, bringing blessing, and saving the world. Learn the lessons of Joseph. God is faithful to do everything he has promised. Related to that, and perhaps even more pointedly, evil is not off the leash. I remember hearing something a guy said who was suffering just one of those horrendous personal tragedies. And he said this. It's not a phrase you often hear. He said, the hand of the Lord is heavy on me right now, but I am glad it is his hand. The story of Jacob and sons teaches that the knife that cuts you and me with relationship pain, joblessness, mental illness, physical illness, or a thousand other afflictions is not wielded by the random madman called fate, as if chance actually determines how your life will go. It is not wielded by the wicked, unforgiving brute called karma, as if everything that happens to you is your fault. It is undeniable that the knife of our life circumstances can cut very deeply and very, very painfully. But it is held in the hands of the God who loves you more than you will ever know. How can I say that? Because he gave his own son to die on a cross for you and for me. Someone has to be holding that knife. It's either blind chance, karma, or the loving God who's willing to give his own son to die for you. Who do you trust? I am so glad that as much as I struggle with it, and as much as it causes me to have anguished questions to God about what he's doing, at least I know who to ask, and at least I know he is good. He is relentlessly, unstoppably good. He has an unbreakable commitment to do good for us, a commitment he showed at the cost of his own dear son at the cross. There are no accidents or mistakes in our lives. God is sovereign, and I promise you, he is good. That is not light, fluffy comfort. Given the choice, all of us would choose a God who just gives us really easy lives. You know, the the God Channel TV lives, the, the lives where everything just works out beautifully. That's what we want. But in the reality of a world where you and I have ruined with our sin, where there is pain and suffering and eventually death, we want to know that someone is in control and we want to know that the someone who's in control is profoundly, unquestionably good. And we want to know that even the evil that we do and the evil that's done to us is part of his purpose to bless. Nothing is random. Nothing is pointless. And nothing is out of his control. 
If that can be true of the greatest wickedness of all time, the murder of the Son of God by his own creation, then it can be true of what you and I suffer too. Romans 8.28 assures us in those wonderful words, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. The God of Joseph is a God that you and I can trust. And our prayer should be that the lessons we've been learning week after week after week would sink into our hearts so that when the painful times come, we don't run from God, we run to God. And we know that for all the confusion and pain, God is good and it is God who is in control. I'm going to take questions in a moment, but uh, let's pray together before we do that. Our Father God, we do not understand. Uh, We don't understand the, the theology, the ideas about you that this passage presents, that you can be perfectly good and perfectly in control, and yet we're we're responsible, real, relating people. But more deeply than that, more powerfully, we don't understand why our lives look the way they do sometimes. And so we pray that you would help us to to get it. We pray that your spirit would teach us deep in our hearts that you are good, you're in control, that we can trust you, and that all your ways are for our blessing. We ask this by your spirit, for your son's glory. Amen. I'll be hanging around afterwards, so uh, do feel free to uh, ask me questions then, but I wonder if there are one or two questions that people want to ask um, in the light of uh, some of the things that are raised uh, in this passage. You were saying that time and time again, uh, there's practical examples of of God at work. Um, Genesis, and I guess your example of the plane and whatnot. But when something happens, when, I don't know, someone dies, when someone's raped, and then you can't see practical examples of how that is good at all, or how any good comes mm. from that. But that's difficult, isn't it? Yeah. Like, And I guess it's easy for us to see... You know, obviously Jesus died on the cross and we can see that he died, that he, that he endured death for us. But then he rose again, so we see the good that came out of that. Yeah. But all too often it's, we, we, sometimes we will never see the good that comes out of some situations. How, I don't know, you've been really encouraging, so thanks for that, mate. But how would you add to that? Or would, no. No, you're, yeah, how would you, is there anything else that you could kind of add to that? Or, or, I can't tell you anything which will make sense of everything that's going to happen in life. And I think one of the, um, one of the things that the story of Joseph does is it immerses us into a, a long-term mess. It's one of the great things is that it takes a long time for things to get sorted out. And not everybody in the story sees things sorted out. People die along the way. And what it does is it teaches me about the character of God. And the reason we need to know about the character of God is because there is no promise in the Bible that things will be explained. 
Instead, there are loads of examples of this is how God works, this is how God works, this is how God works. And so what we're, what we're given in the Bible is never a, is not a, um, a promise that God will tell me what's the point of this suffering in my life. Sometimes you do see, but often you don't. Instead, I see this is the sort of God I trust. It's a life of faith. That's why the Bible's full of history, because it's a life of faith. And I need to know what he's like. He reveals himself most perfectly at the cross. That's where we see God's character most blazingly revealed. But he also gives us hundreds of case histories through the Bible, so I can see the sort of stuff that I can't see any messes so deep and dark that God doesn't somehow bring good from it. But I see quite often it makes no sense to people at the time. Quite often people die before it's resolved. And so we have this promise that we live... um, We live following Jesus who dies and then rises again. And one day at the resurrection, everything will make sense. This side of it, all we have is faith, but we have faith in a God with a wonderful track record. Doesn't mean it stops being confusing, doesn't mean it stops hurting, but it does mean at least we can cling to him. And although hard-pressed, it doesn't need to destroy us. Time for one more. Or comfort. Is there anything from this that we can um, maybe apply to or comfort people who aren't Christians? Um, good question. So I guess there'll be, a, there'll be some amongst us tonight who are um, still looking into these things, wouldn't call themselves Christians. Uh, um, as a church, we want to be open to everybody. Uh, in one sense, what we get in Genesis is not, um, there's no arguments for the, you know, this isn't, this is why you should become a Christian. This is more, this is the nature of the God that Christians follow. Um, I guess it does, what it does do is it asks the question of how, how you make sense of the world and how you face up to things when bad stuff happens. What, what is your answer? Because it does happen to everybody and burying our heads in the sand or drinking our way through it, uh, not great answers. So what answer do we have? And I think the wonderful thing is that um, in the Bible, I find you need two things um, if you're looking into Christianity. It needs to be objectively true. There's got to be evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible's reliable. But it also got to be able to make sense of life if it's true. And I think that um, what I would say this shows me is here is here is the reality of life. And here is a God I can trust in life. This, this rings true and makes sense of life. And this tells me, here's a God I can put my trust in. Um, so, it, And it does beg the question of where is your trust when life gets as painful as it will do? But it also does go to the reliability of God. It's one of the incredible things is that we've got this, in, this reliable history that there are events that happen again and again, historically recorded events that all build towards the life, the death and the resurrection. This didn't happen in a corner. Uh, the Bible's a public historical book. And that's wonderful for knowing that we can trust in the Lord Jesus. Do grab me afterwards um, if, uh, if you've got questions. I'll hand over to Richard.